Father, uh, we do gather together. There's something, Father, when you, when you began this whole work of creating a people for yourself, a people uh, who come together under your name, uh, you told Abraham he would be the father uh, of a nation. And, uh, and that came true. He did become a father of a nation. And at the end of the scriptures, Lord, in the last book of the Bible, uh, we get a picture, a glimpse of the bride of Jesus descending from heaven. And uh, it's, it's a group of people gathered that you have made, Lord. And that's why this gathering that we do on Sunday morning matters. We pray that we would be able to remember together and celebrate together and be encouraged together uh, because, Father, we need that. Uh, we come from many different places this morning uh, in the sense that some are rejoicing. It's just the wonderful things that are happening in their families and their lives and their places of work. And others find themselves in not such great circumstances. And we need to be reminded, God, that um, right in the midst of these difficult circumstances, you're with us. And we would ask you to teach us now. We would ask, in fact, Father, this whole month, all of Advent season, we would be learning, going deeper in our faith. We would ask you to help us to invite friends, people that we love and people that we care about, people that we know where we work and where we live, that we would be able to invite them and they would get to hear about Jesus and who he is and how he loves them. So would you be our teacher now? This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I apologize, I've got a mint in my mouth. You're supposed to get rid of that before you get up here. And I, I realized when I was praying, I hadn't, but anyway. Okay, I got a question for you. What does it take to disturb your serenity? What upsets your calm? One of the things I enjoy doing in the summers, we go to Canada and we go up to a lake called Aylan Lake and it's a large lake that we, uh, my, my in-laws have some cottages on. And uh, what I love about it is I love to sail on this lake. It is a great lake to sail on, especially just before a storm. The winds are kicking up, the waves are kicking up and it's just blasting down the lake. And you can, you can, I've got a small sailboat and you can just scream across the lake. But the one thing you have to be very careful of is the occasional rogue wind that comes with these stormy gales. Uh, a giant gust that just suddenly rips down the lake. And when that happens, uh, it, it's not uncommon to capsize. I mean, bam, if you're not ready for it, if you're not prepared, if you don't know exactly what to do, if you don't stay calm, it will turtle you. It'll turn your little boat upside down. And there you are in the wind and in the waves. And suddenly it's not so fun. It's actually kind of frightening. Uh, here's the point. If you live long enough, life will absolutely send you some rogue winds. You will lose a job. You will lose a good friendship, one you thought you would never lose. Your parents may go through a divorce or maybe you go through a divorce. Uh, you hear a doctor say, it's cancer. Uh, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, the one you are hoping, maybe longing to spend the rest of your life with, calls it quits on the relationship. Or you find yourself just worrying, worrying about your kids or worrying about provision and finances or worrying about your health and you can't seem to stop. It just seems to sit right here on your shoulders. We would all like to live someplace where rogue winds never blow. Am I right? Trouble is there is no place like that. We are not in charge of wind deployment or very much else for that matter. 
And so we need peace that comes from a different source, a, a different source than from us controlling things. Jesus said this one time. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now the peace the world gives is, is kind of a good mood that comes along in the context of pleasant circumstances usually. You're on vacation. It's 75 degrees you drive your perfect Lexus to the perfect beach bungalow. The kids are perfectly behaved, wearing their little perfect polo shirts. Your spouse looks perfect. The mai mai is cooked perfectly. And then you realize, wait a minute, this is not my family. <laughs> my kids have colic. My spouse has issues. My boss is a narcissistic psychopath. My car has a broken transmission. My therapist is on vacation. So where do I find peace now? And not just in the rogue wind moments, not just in big disastrous moments. How about finding peace in the midst of a traffic jam or alongside the uh, working with an obstinate coworker or when you get a snarky email or a flat tire or a clogged toilet, how about then? You see what I need and I would submit what you need, what we need is, is serenity. Serenity is the state of being calm and peaceful and untroubled, even in the midst of difficulties. You see, serenity is not based on pleasant circumstances. It's instead built on a solid spiritual foundation that can withstand any kind of rogue wind. And this is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount when he says things like this. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. What things, Jesus? Well, important things like food, clothing, shelter, vitally important, essential things. Those things will be given to you as well, Jesus says. There's a prayer. It's actually called the serenity prayer. Uh, you have it in your bulletins if you pick one up. It was really, it was written by Reinhold Niebuhr. Probably in the 1950s, there was the first iteration of it. It's gone through different iterations over the decades. It's an old prayer. It's actually just nothing more than a little spiritual tool, something you can use to help you focus on the peace that Jesus gives, even when rogue winds blow into your life unexpectedly. Uh, you've probably heard the short version of the serenity prayer. But I want to give you the whole thing. That's what you've got uh, in your possession if you picked up a bulletin. Uh, we're going to put it on the screen and I'm going, to, I'm going to read it to you. It goes like this. God, grant me the serenity, the peace, to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. That's interesting. We'll come back to that one eventually. Taking as he, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life, not perfectly happy, and supremely happy with him forever in the next. That's the serenity prayer. Uh, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount now together for some time. And during this Christmas season, we're going to kind of set that study aside for just a bit. And we're going to be taking a, a break or a little adventure into this thing of serenity. 
Personally, I've been praying this prayer, the serenity prayer this week, multiple times during the day, every day. And I invite you to take that little piece of paper that has the prayer on it and use it yourself. Pray it in the morning when you get up. Pray it in the evening before you go to bed. Um, In the weeks ahead, we're going to look at other parts of this prayer. We're going to talk about how we get courage to change the things that we can. That's next week. Uh, We're going to talk about how I get wisdom to know the difference between what I can't change and what I can. That'll be a couple weeks from now. All of this is going to lead us right up to our Christmas Eve celebration. And this week, we're starting out by talking about having the serenity to accept what we cannot change. And since this is Christmas season, we're going to get into this topic by looking at the life of a young woman, and her name is Mary. Uh, This young woman faced all kinds of challenges, all kinds of rogue winds, many things that she just frankly had to accept. And I invite you to be thinking about your life and your challenges, the things that may cause you to fear occasionally as we look at the life of Mary. And be asking yourself, What things in my life do I just need to accept? Do I just need to kind of let let go of and accept? You know, the beginning of Mary's story is probably really familiar to you. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and this is what he says. He says, greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary, you're going to give birth to a king. And we might think, well, what response would Mary have? All right, that is awesome. That is great. Uh, I'll get to be the mother of Jesus, a king. I'll be like Mrs. God. All generations will call me blessed. People will revere my name. Hail Mary, full of grace. I'll have a football pass named after me. My image will be more familiar to people all around the world than any woman who ever lived and killed until Kim Kardashian, you know, whatever. But the text does not say that Mary was greatly thrilled. It actually says Mary was greatly troubled at his words. And I suspect we misunderstand Mary, as we often do, characters that we come across in the Bible by assuming that she knew from the beginning what we know from looking back on that story. You see, she didn't know where these statements and promises were going to lead. This is why I think we we need tools like the serenity prayer sometimes. There's a great philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, wrote this. He said, life can only be understood looking backwards, but it must be lived going forwards. There's the tension. That's how Mary had to experience her life, by going forward. And here is her situation. She's a young woman. Uh, She's engaged. She's also now pregnant. And Joseph, her fiance, knows that he is not the father. And so understand, in Mary's context, she would be regarded as an adulteress. 
And then the Torah, the law that governed her culture, the law which her fiance Joseph obeyed passionately, carefully, ardently, the punishment for adultery was to have your life taken away, to be stoned. That was the punishment for adultery. Now, if by chance Joseph chose not to have her killed, he would still be required by law not to marry her. She's an adulteress after all. So at best, Mary's expectation would be that she would be left destitute. No husband to take care of her, to provide. She would be ostracized by her village. She would be a single parent. Her son would be considered illegitimate, a bastard child, excluded therefore from sacred assemblies. Now, we know, of course, the story doesn't turn out that way. Mary didn't know how the story was going to turn out. She had to live in the space of not knowing, just like you, just like me. We always live in the space of not knowing. She had to live in the moment, in the now, if you will. So this was a huge rogue wind for Mary, something she didn't see coming. And yet her response is amazing. I am the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may it be to me as you have said. (laughs) It's so interesting to me. Mary begins actually to suffer for Jesus before Jesus ever suffers for Mary. And we'll come back to that idea. You see, when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph took him, you recall, to the temple and there was an old man there. What was his name? Simeon, yeah. Simeon takes the baby, baby Jesus, praises God, blesses the baby, prophesied a great destiny for baby Jesus. You would think that that would be wonderful for Mary to hear. Wow, this is awesome. This is more confirmation that this this child is really going to be something. But then Simeon turns to Mary, not Joseph, not the baby, just to Mary. And this is what he says. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. Mary must have wondered, wow, what what does that mean? What is the sword that's going to pierce my soul? How will I know it? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. One of the things that Mary had to accept pretty early on, it seems, was the the issue of just financial difficulties, poverty, if you will. Uh, We know this because in Israel, when a woman gave birth, she was to offer a lamb without defect. And this was for uh, a sacrifice for her purification, also a dedication for the, for the young boy. And offering this lamb, of course, was expensive if you didn't have a lot of lambs. So there was in the law an exception for this. It said that if she cannot afford a lamb, she's to bring two doves or two young pigeons. And Mary could not afford a lamb, so she and Joseph bring two young pigeons. Now, I'm sure others were there too. This wasn't, didn't happen to be a day where nobody else was having a baby brought to the temple. No, there were lots of parents bringing their babies to the temple to be sure. And with their newborn babies, uh, in they come with their, their lovely little christening gowns and a light and fluffy white little lamb that they would bring, uh, something better than pigeons. But all Mary and Joseph can afford are the pigeons. And Jesus, as far as we know, wasn't dressed in a little christening gown. So nobody was ooing and awing over Mary's little baby. 
And priests would first take the families who come with lambs, right? <laughs> For obvious reasons. The, the children, the little child, the child that's dressed in a gown and coming with a lamb. Why? Because that's the way life works. If you're poor, you wait. And the truth is, I mean, every mom aches to have the very best for her baby, the, the very best that can be provided. And of course, this is, this is Jesus. But Mary comes with all she can afford. Mary may have wondered if the sword that Simeon talked about was just the problem of this poverty, the financial hardship that she and Joseph experienced early on. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Now we know too that uh, Mary will have to accept the, the death of some of her dreams that probably accompanied these statements that were made about this baby she was going to have. You know, every parent do, has dreams for their child. What exactly did Mary dream for Jesus? Eh, we don't know exactly. But I do find it interesting that Mary and Joseph, when they had other children, they named their boys names like Jacob, Joseph, Judah, and Simon. These were patriarchal names. These names, of course, are the names of the leaders of the tribes of Israel. What were they thinking? Maybe they were thinking, maybe they were hoping that one day when the Roman oppressors are overthrown, because everybody knew that's what the Messiah was going to do. And Mary's been told that her baby's the Messiah. So when the Romans are finally done away with, and when Jesus, her son, sits upon the, the throne, the throne of Israel, maybe her other children too will rule right alongside, right behind Jesus as one of the patriarchs, one of the founders, one of the leaders of Israel. We don't, we don't know. We do know that Jesus and Joseph and Mary early on, even when Jesus was just a little child, they had to flee Israel. They had to flee to Egypt as refugees. And Herod wanted Jesus dead, of course. He had heard about a king being born of the Jews. And we know that being a refugee is no parent's dream for their child. Am I right? Nobody wants that. The point is they had to have the serenity to accept the things they couldn't change. We know that as the years went by, Mary would have to accept her inability to control other people and situations, especially Jesus. You may remember when Jesus was 12, they took him to Jerusalem, uh, back to the temple. This was for a Passover celebration. On their way home, traveling, no doubt, with extended family, lots of relatives and things of that nature, we're told that Jesus stayed behind at the temple. But Mary and Joseph were unaware of this. They lost Jesus for three days. Can you imagine I think losing a child might be every parent's absolutely worst nightmare. When our kids were growing up, we occasionally lost one. Uh, once we lost uh, one at a mall for a little while and uh, we lost another one at Disney World. For just a short time, we eventually got them back. That's why you have multiple kids, by the way. Just, but, but am I right, parents? Those are panic moments. Your whole world just suddenly crumbles in panic, looking for that child. Imagine how you would feel if you were parenting Jesus, the son of God, and you lost him. I mean, I don't know how prayer worked for Mary, but I picture Gabriel, the angel, possibly showing up again and saying, Hail Mary, full of grace. Uh, oh, where is Jesus? You know, God's son, the Messiah, God in the flesh, your first child. Have you seen him lately? Well, they go back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, and Jesus is there being Jesus. 
He's astounding people by the questions he asks and the answers he gives. It's interesting, it's not Joseph the father either who speaks, it's Mary again. And Mary says to Jesus, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously, we understand that word, searching for you. Maybe this is the sword that Simeon earlier had talked about that would pierce Mary's soul. Several days of anxiety, worrying about, wondering where Jesus is. Do you think she's the only parent in history to ever ask her child, why have you treated me like this? You think she's the only parent ever to wonder, why can't I get my children to do what I want them to do? Why can't I fix them? Why doesn't my nagging, or parents, we call it advising them, why doesn't that get them to change? What do I do? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Uh, Jesus isn't even in this circumstance that apologetic. He says, why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? What are you going to do with Jesus if you're Mary, if you're Joseph? You cannot give him a time out. He created time. (laughs) And then we're told this. I find this fascinating. We read, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. That is the understatement of the world. And it says, then he went down to Nazareth. They go back home. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Jesus really was always obedient to his parents. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And this, I think, gets us to another piece of what serenity, real peace, involves. That last phrase is used several times to describe Mary in several different circumstances. After Jesus was born and the shepherds came to visit, uh, the shepherds told everybody what had happened to them. Angels, you know that story. You know, don't be afraid, shepherds. And, you know, a child has been born and he's going to bring peace, peace on earth and so on. And they come and they share all that with Mary. And we read in Luke 2 that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. This was somewhat of a pattern for Mary. And I would just submit that accepting what I cannot change, I think among other things requires making space in your heart for those things, a place to ponder, a place to hold things that I don't necessarily understand at the moment, a place where I know God is at work, even when the circumstances to me are hard to comprehend. The alternative to this frankly, is to live with worry. It's to live with frustration. It's to live in anger, always trying to change, always trying to stop, always trying to control people or things or circumstances and discovering you can't. You see, accepting means that I don't live regretting the past, which I cannot fix, or worrying about the future, which I cannot control. Instead, I live in the present, understanding it's the place where God is working and where God can bring blessing. Because that is what God does. God is always working. He's working out his purposes. He's bringing blessing. You see, God doesn't bless the past. He doesn't bless the future. He blesses the now. It's the only way to bless a person is in the now. 
The situation that you and I are in now is where God is at work. And so I ponder and I treasure and I reflect. And as I do all of that, I grow. And I do all of that in the midst of circumstances sometimes I just don't understand. And circumstances I can't fix. Now Mary spends her life learning to accept all kinds of things she doesn't understand and cannot change. She experiences in her life plenty of rejection and plenty of disappointment. For example, Jesus becomes a man. He begins his public ministry now. He's proclaiming the good news that the king has come, the Messiah is here. And Mary has been waiting for this for 30 some years, knowing this kid is special. This kid is the son of the most high God. And so this is great. The time has arrived. Here we go. Rome's gonna be gone. Maybe my other boys will get on board with this. And only Jesus starts doing these strange, weird things that Mary never expected him to do, like breaking the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, eating grain on the Sabbath, touching lepers. What's he doing that for? He, he lets prostitutes caress his feet, wash his feet with her hair. Uh, he eats with tax collectors. The, the Messiah is supposed to be someone who comes into Israel and gets rid of sinners, not party with them. I mean, how confusing is all this, do you think? Incredibly, incredibly confusing. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, the people who Mary must have thought would surely rally around her son, the Messiah, right? These people are going to get on board. Well, they decide instead of rallying around Jesus, uh, let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. This guy's dangerous. He's not on board with our plan. And this whole thing must have been so strange to Mary and to her family. We're told in the gospel of Mark, Mark 3, that when his family, Jesus' family heard about this, heard about his teaching, heard about these things he was doing, they went to take charge of them for they said, he's out of his mind. This is not going at all like we expected it would. He is out of his mind. That includes Mary. Mary believes that Jesus, the little baby that she put in the manger is now mentally somehow off the mark. And when this happens, Jesus is teaching. That's the context. And, and people let Jesus know, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Oddly enough, Jesus doesn't say, oh, oh, time out. You know, let me go see my mom. Let me go see my brothers. Let me honor them. What Jesus says is, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at those seated in the circle around him. And he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, does God's will, is my brother, my sister, my mother. That had to be terribly confusing to Jesus' family, especially his mom, especially Mary. I know if I was speaking somewhere, my mother's deceased now, but you know, uh, if my mother had shown up somewhere where I'm speaking and somebody said, hey, your mom's out there, uh, she wants to see you. And I said, well, who's my mother? Tell you what my mother would say. <laughs> I'm your cotton picking mother. You must be nuts, you know. Um, Here's Jesus saying these words Mary could not understand. Here is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What Jesus was really doing was creating a new family. I mean, we understand that now, but that's looking back, right? At the, he was creating a new family, another family, an even more important family than our immediate families. And Jesus doesn't stop to explain any of this, though. He just goes right on talking. And apparently he leaves Mary and his family outside. And it seems cold on the surface of things when you read it. Maybe this is the sword that Simeon talked about. 
when he said to Mary, and your soul too is going to be pierced. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And then there's the time we see Mary right at the end of Jesus' life. Jesus is being crucified. And John tells us that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Mary's right there. This had to be very difficult, very confusing, obviously heartbreaking to see this body, Jesus' body, the body that was promised to Mary um, by the angel Gabriel, the body that she carried in her womb, the body she'd laid in the manger when he was a little baby, the body she fed, the body she changed, the body she rocked and bathed and clothed and loved. That body that had now been whipped with lashes, nailed to a cross, hung up there to die. I wonder what Mary thought of the cross. I bet she never wore one as a piece of jewelry. John tells us this. It says, when Jesus saw his mother there, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he sees his mother. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's the disciple John. He said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. What's going on? You got to wonder what, what, what in the world has happened? Mary has four other sons, all adults by now. Where are they? Well, they're not there at the cross, apparently. John tells us elsewhere that for even his own brothers, Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. And maybe these brothers took Mary's loyalty to Jesus as kind of a, an act of betrayal. Mom, you've always loved him more, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, we don't know, but we know they're not there. What we do know too is that this family is divided. These four brothers did not believe in Jesus. They were not following Jesus. And here at the cross, Mary is entrusted to John, one of Jesus' followers. Are the other brothers not taking care of their mother? Have they cut off this relationship? Are they estranged from her? Again, we don't exactly know. But I'll tell you what we do know is that Mary has now entered again back into Jesus' family, this new family that Jesus has created. You see, her son is now also her Lord. And his mother has become his disciple. And she has a new family now. It's called the church. It's the body of Jesus Christ. It's the bride of Jesus. And Mary is a part of that new family. It's a wonderful family. But she enters into that family not without pain. Not without pain. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Now, as we know, they eventually take Jesus down off that cross. And just before they do, they, they pierce his body with a spear. And Jesus' blood begins to flow again. And I'll just bet Mary remembers Simeon's words. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. She's looking at her son being pierced and a soul will pierce your own soul too. And that has been happening. That has been happening. It's interesting, friends, if you live long enough, a sword will pierce 
your soul. You will love, and because you love someone, something happens, it will cost you. You will see someone you love suffer. You will want to help them. You will want to save them, but you can't. A sword will pierce your soul. Friends, we who follow Jesus do not say, I will choose to have an attitude of serenity because it's a more pleasant way to live. No, no. No, we pray, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. God, give me what I simply cannot manufacture on my own. But then the question is, can God even do that? Because really, what in this world is there to be serene about? Not very much. But I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) But there is an answer, and the answer is right here. It's this. It's communion. It's... Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection and the fact that when we come to this table, we remember those things until he comes back. See, that's what Paul tells us. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is why we can be serene. It's why we can have peace. What's depicted in this thing we call communion, the Lord's table, is the sacrifice of Jesus, the death of Jesus, but also the resurrection and the remembrance of the fact that he will return. And those facts change literally everything. They change everything for us. They changed everything for Mary, you understand. You see, now Mary begins to understand the foundation of true serenity. It's after the cross. It's after the resurrection. In fact, in the first chapter of Acts, uh, the disciples are waiting in the upper room. Jesus has already begun to appear to different individuals. Uh, He's come back from the dead. And the 11 disciples, there's not 12 now, Judas is dead. The 11 disciples are named there in the first chapter of Acts. And then we read this. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And oh yeah, and with Jesus' brothers. Wow, (laughs) there the brothers are. They show up suddenly. Now both of Mary's families are together again. And the thing I I want us to see, the thing I want us to, to grasp here is that in all this time, And all this confusion and all this difficulty and all this uncertainty and all these rogue winds, who would have ever guessed it? Jesus was up to something. Jesus has a plan. Jesus was working his purposes, bringing up there, down to here on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven's friends, Jesus is always doing this. Always, always. He's always up to something wonderful. Often in the very circumstances that confuse us and disappoint us and threaten us and feel like they're gonna capsize us. And so we pray, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, not because accepting them will make my life more pleasant. 
Not because I can't control them anyway, so what else can I do? Not because stoic acceptance is a good tool for emotional management. Not because I'm just trying to muddle through now until maybe someday in the future I'll get to go to heaven. No. Because the God of the cross is also the God of the resurrection. Because the soul that is pierced by the sword today will be remade into a soul bursting and full of joy tomorrow. That's the way the gospel works. Because the people I love are infinitely better off in God's hands than they would ever be in mine. Because just as the, the old hymn says, there's a, you know, we've been singing old carols, but there's an old hymn that really beautifully and wonderfully celebrates this. And one of the stanzas, actually two of the stanzas in this hymn go like this. This is my father's world. Nobody else's. It's my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven won. It's talking about the kingdom coming. So when a rogue wind comes and I don't need to tell you, it will. God, grant me, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Now, at the close of our service, we're going to sing this old hymn together. Why? Because I made Aaron prepare to do that. <laughs> and I would just say to you, if you're in a place where you need serenity, calm, peace, maybe in the midst of difficult circumstances. At that time in our service, I'm going to ask you to stand. Not right now, but at that time, I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're just going to kind of pray over folks that need serenity. Right now, before we do that, we get to come to this table. And we get to remember that the God of the cross is also the God of the resurrection. Jesus in the upper room. And again, this was another one of those puzzling, confusing moments in the life of Jesus' disciples. They didn't know what he was doing. They didn't know what he was referring to. They've been eating a meal, a Passover meal. The Passover meal was for the nation Israel to remember how God had rescued them out of Egypt. And in commemorating that meal with his disciples, Jesus did this, this odd thing that confused them that didn't make sense until afterwards. And they were able to look back and they go, oh, that's what he was talking about. Jesus in the upper room took the bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. We're going to partake of this meal together. So as the ushers come and, and uh, dispense these elements to you, um, the one prerequisite for that is that you, you partake of this meal with faith. You can bring your sins to Jesus because his body is broken for you. Your body doesn't have to be broken. You can be forgiven. And um, you can receive that gift simply by faith. So as the trays come by, you know, take this bread and hold it because we're going to participate Together, go ahead and dispense and, uh, and then we will feast on Jesus together.